Welcome to Chatterax Etc. with your host, Dr. Deepak Raja. Hi, this is uh, Dr. Raja here with the inaugural episode of our podcast, Chatterax Etc. I was hoping to find a forum where we could touch on some ophthalmology topics that would be of interest to the general public, things that I probably take for granted as an ophthalmologist, but that other people may not know much about. I thought that a good first topic would be cataracts. After all, the name of the podcast is Chatteracts, etc. So this is uh, Cataracts. And uh, I thought that we could also talk about cataract surgery and interject it with a little bit of history, some references to some pop culture, and also uh, interject some of my own uh, humor and some stories uh, in the process. Cataract surgery is the most commonly performed eye surgery in this country. Uh, Reports show that in 2015, 3.6 million cataract surgeries were done. And because the population in the United States continues to grow, we expect that as time goes on, say in 2020, which is only uh, a year away, that there will be approximately 50 million cataracts that will need to be followed. Uh, by ophthalmologists with obviously a decent amount of those needing cataract surgery from year to year. This is attributable to the aging of the baby boomer population and the fact that with medical science, we are living longer lives. And as I tell my patients, just because we get cataracts, it doesn't mean anything other than it's a normal process of aging. And as we'll talk about later on in this uh, podcast, All it means is that you're living a long, illustrious life, and we just have to deal with some of those um, unfortunate changes that birthdays can bring on. So let's talk about cataracts and what they are, first and foremost, because without understanding where in the eye this even takes place, There is no way, especially without any pictures or video for me to show you, how you could have an idea of what I'm talking about. So first, let's remember what the eye looks like. The eye has a curved area called the cornea in front of it. If you were to put on a contact lens, for instance, that would be the area that you would be touching. To you, it might look colored, but it's actually clear. And the colored part that you see, either blue eyes or brown eyes, it's actually the iris which is colored, pigmented, uh, behind it. So that the curved area that you would feel is your cornea. Don't try this at home, you might cause a corneal abrasion. But the white part of the eye is actually called the sclera. And then around that is a clear membrane called the conjunctiva. Well, inside the eye, behind the cornea, there is a space of a fluid called the anterior uh, chamber. And then the iris, and the iris has a small hole called the pupil black circle, which uh, you may not see these nowadays because of the camera technology, but back in the past when we would take photos, sometimes people would get a red reflex in the photo, and that would just be the light going through the pupil, hitting the retina, reflecting back, and giving kind of a reddish, orangish complexion. And behind that is the lens. Now you can consider the lenses being shaped somewhat like an almond and it actually helps us to see, to focus between the tear film, which is like the watery component on the front of the eye, the cornea, and the lens, it actually helps to 
bend light and to focus images onto the retina. And if you think of the eye as a camera, because really a camera is based upon the anatomy of an eyeball, then the retina would be like the film of the camera. So that is how the picture works. Light rays are coming through, hitting the cornea and the tear film. Then it bends the light, hits the lens, bends the light some more, and hopefully they come to focus directly onto the retina, giving a nice, clear picture. So the lens does actually play a very strong role in being able to focus. Without a lens, you would only see probably some hand movements, or at best, you'd be able to count fingers on a hand. So not great usable vision at all. The lens also has the ability to focus, especially before the age of 40, we're able to read by the lens changing shape and allowing the light rays to bend even further and focus on the retina. As we age, uh, past the age of 40, we start progressively losing that ability to focus uh, until it is essentially lost for good at around 65 or 70, and we become increasingly dependent on reading glasses. A lot of people feel like the reading glasses are somehow making them worse in terms of their ability to focus, but that simply isn't true. What's going to happen is going to happen regardless of whether somebody wears reading glasses or not, and there's no point in suffering needlessly. So I usually recommend that people wear the reading glasses and not try to have some false sense of bravado. There are no blood vessels in the lens, and that helps to keep the lens clear, which means that light can pass through without being scattered. This is extremely helpful in order to help see, especially if you're, for instance, driving at night and these light rays are passing through the lens. Now what happens as people get older is they do start producing these waste products, these proteins, and there's nowhere for them to go. There is no plumbing. There is no blood vessel supply to help take these somewhere else. And so the proteins are deposited in the lens. As they deposit in the lens in greater and greater numbers, then the lens becomes cloudy and becomes a cataract and light cannot pass through quite as well when it hits these proteins. They can scatter in various directions, and instead of being focused on the retina, they are now scattered left and right, up and down, all throughout the retina, causing glare and halos and other visual aberrations. Now that we've defined a cataract as a cloudy lens, we can further describe cataracts in various ways, depending on the, where the cloudiness is. The most common kind of cataract is what we call a nuclear cataract, where the center or nucleus of the lens becomes cloudy. Typically, this will present as a lens that is becoming increasingly yellow and then eventually becoming brown, if not addressed. Uh, this uh, nuclear cataract is by far the most common presentation of what we see in our older patients. The next type would be a cortical cataract, similar to the spokes of a bicycle wheel, or if you prefer other food analogies, a slice of pizza or a slice of pie, that triangular wedge. And you can see these wedges of opacity, typically kind of a whitish color, in the periphery of the lens. Many times, because they are peripheral, uh, folks will have difficulty with driving at night. Why? Because they are driving in a dim environment, their pupil, that black hole, dilates to try to let in more light. And as it does so, you're getting more of that peripheral opacity becoming uh, in the visual axis. And so the light hits these opacities, reflects everywhere, and people get uh, glare and halos typically more at night. Another type of popular cataract is the posterior subcapsular cataract. 
This occurs when there is a film of opacity on the back surface of the lens on the capsule. And usually these are fairly central instead of being peripheral. And so many times patients may have problems with difficulty driving in the daytime or also difficulty reading up close. And that's just because of some of the optics uh, involved there. It also brings up another good point, the different parts of the lens itself. I like to think of cataracts as M&Ms. You've got a candy shell surrounding a bunch of chocolate. Now, obviously the consistency of cataracts is different, but uh, it is something similar and it helps you conceptualize it. Uh, funny story, when I was starting off uh, early in practice, I really loved this whole M&M analogy and I got these little containers filled with blue and white uh, M&Ms and I, for some reason, decided that I was going to give a M&M to patients when I was talking to them about cataract and cataract surgery just to really drive the point home. I think I may have just been hungry or at the grocery store when I came up with this idea. I never really ended up using it because it was just a little bit too weird. One day, must have been a couple of years later, I think after a particularly late uh, day in clinic, I was hungry and I decided to eat one of the M&Ms. Uh, it did not taste very good. And so I did get rid of the M&Ms. However, I did keep the analogy and I still use that when I'm explaining uh, cataracts to my patients. Uh, true story, by the way. And so eventually these cataracts become symptomatic to patients. Initially, we try to treat them with a new change in their glasses prescription until they eventually reach a point where glasses will no longer help. And then this problem becomes more of a surgical problem. The solution is surgery. Symptoms include just decreased vision, affecting uh, the ability to watch television, to drive uh, glare and halos present, especially at night. I may have difficulty reading. Uh, you shouldn't have any kind of pain, and usually the vision doesn't fluctuate so much as it is just poor and not corrected very well by glasses. Medical insurance usually tries to see whether a patient has a best corrected visual acuity of 2040. Alternatively, we can do glare testing in the office to try to simulate nighttime driving. And if the vision worsens to 2040, that is also an indication. The best indication, in my opinion, is the cataract questionnaires that we give our patients. This asks them a variety of questions in order to try to determine whether their activities of daily living, the things that they do on a day-to-day -day basis, maybe including their hobbies, are being affected by their vision. And if so, then if cataracts are present and believed to be the source of the trouble, it is reasonable to do cataract surgery. I'm fond of saying we treat people and not numbers. And I think it's important to not lose sight of that fact, the human element. I've often been curious as to what it is like looking out of cataracts. I think a good example of this could be the impressionist painter Claude Monet. He was well known to have cataracts as early as 1912. He was born in 1840. And early on in his career, for instance, in 1902, he painted a garden called A Pathway to Monet's Garden. And it depicts classic Impressionist style, but still there were forms that were easily discernible as flowers and a pathway. And this has been compared to an actual photograph that was taken of Monet in his garden. By somewhere in the either 1920 or 1922, 
there was a painting called The Rose Path, which appeared to be a scene similar to the previous painting, taken approximately two decades earlier. But now, forms are barely discernible. There are swirls of color that just look very, very abstract. And it's probably because he could only paint what he could see. There are a series of letters that he has written to other artists expressing his frustration about how his vision was continuing to get worse and it was becoming difficult to continue painting the way he had become accustomed to. Because cataract surgery technology was not great at that time, he had deferred cataract surgery for a number of years until he eventually got one eye done. By all accounts, he was a difficult patient and did not follow the long post-operative course very effectively as he would become frustrated about not being able to paint but was eventually able to return to vision somewhere in the 2050 to 2070 range. He refused to have the other one done due to it being a frustrating process. And so the imbalance between the cataract eye, which was blurry and yellow, and the non-cataract eye, which was clearer and more colorful, was difficult for him and was a great source of frustration. He did eventually go back to painting the series of water lilies and the style of the painting was more similar to his previous way of painting in the sense that it was not quite as abstract. Cataract surgery has changed tremendously over the years. Back in prehistoric times, if you can imagine this in ancient Egypt, they actually found statues where the pupil was drawn in white, indicating these really dense cataracts, because then people could see it with the naked eye when they're really, really mature. And the process by which people were taking care of cataracts, when they got to that extent, where vision was essentially almost completely gone, or maybe seeing light perception or hand motion, is they would use this process called couching, where they would take these needles and push the lens back into the what we call the vitreous cavity or just push it back out of the way and it would fall back near the retina uh, in the vitreous cavity. We would never dream about doing this these days because it would be fraught with risk of infection or inflammation and retinal detachment and other problems but at the time if a patient just couldn't see out of that eye it was preferable to at least knock the white cataract out of the way and maybe they could get some glasses or something to be able to see at least a bit better. Maybe not the 2020 that we expect these days, but to see better. Uh, obviously, we may think of that now as a kind of barbaric and brutal practice, but that is what they had available with the technology of the time. And this was actually a the standard of care for a number of years until 1747, when modern-day cataract surgery was done by a French ophthalmologist by the name of Jacques Daviel. He performed extracapsular cataract surgery where a large incision was made in the cornea and the lens was removed all in one piece. Now, he was not putting in any kind of intraocular lenses that we do nowadays, so patients still needed to wear a very large prescription in order to see well. In 1949, Dr. Harold Ridley 
performed the first cataract surgery with an implanted intraocular lens, or IOL, at St. Thomas Hospital in London. He was inspired to do research on intraocular lenses when a medical student remarked that it was a pity that the cataract that had been removed could not be replaced with a clear lens. He realized that he would need to pick a material that would not cause any inflammation, and so he picked something called PMMA, or polymethylmacrylate, which became the golden standard for implant materials. Like most revolutionaries, he was met with great opposition by his uh, peers, who did not believe that this was the status quo. Of course, many years later, we see that obviously Dr. Ridley was correct. The modern way of doing cataract surgery can be attributed to Dr. Charles Kalman, who, being inspired by seeing a dentist's ultrasonic probe, decided to use that technology to break up and suck out the materials of the cataract. And that way he could use smaller corneal incisions. Like Dr. Ridley, he was met with ridicule by his peers initially, but as time wore on, it became clear that Dr. Kelvin was actually correct. And the way that phaco emulsification works is essentially, using that M&M analogy from previously, small incisions are made in the cornea and a circle cut is made in the front of the candy shell. Then the probe goes in through that hole, breaks up and sucks out all the chocolate, leaving an empty candy shell with a circle cut in the front. And then an intraocular lens is folded like a burrito injected inside the shell and then it opens up and you come out through the incisions, close up the incisions and that is essentially cataract surgery in a nutshell. Sounds simple, but it was a very complex change for a lot of ophthalmologists because as you can imagine, people who have been trained in the old way, the extracapsular way, now had to learn a completely new revolutionary way of doing cataract surgery in order to keep up with the Joneses as it were. Now, when I was in training, that is the way that we learned how to do cataract surgeries. That was also the advent of using laser to help assist us in cataract surgery. The main steps of the cataract surgery through phaco emulsification still remain, but the laser assists us with making the corneal incisions, making the circle cut in the front of the shell, which can be a perfect circle since it is done by a machine and can be placed as centrally as possible. It can chop up the cataract into small pieces, allowing us to remove the pieces using less phaco energy, ultrasonic energy. And it can also make incisions in this cornea to alleviate uh, more milder amounts of corneal astigmatism. A surgeon is still needed to remove the pieces of the cataract. And I do like to tell my patients that I don't necessarily believe that laser cataract surgery is safer than manual cataract surgery because that would somehow imply that manual cataract surgery is not safe and that's not true but i think it can be better to try to reach a certain refractive outcome nowadays cataract surgery has become more of a cataract refractive surgery where we're trying to shoot for a certain outcome people being more glasses free we have higher visual needs and now we have the capability to try to deliver on those promises in addition to the laser cataract surgery it now affords us an ability to be as precise as possible. We also have astigmatism correcting lenses. We have multifocal IOLs which help us to see at different distances up close, intermediate, which we consider computer use distance vision. Uh, lastly, we also have something called 
the aura, which does intraoperative aberometry. During this, essentially, we are doing a real-time scan of the patient's eye after the cataract has been removed and seeing what lens it predicts should go in there to give the best vision. And we compare this to measurements that we take in the office prior to scheduling the cataract surgery, just so we can make sure there's no difference between theoretical and true practice. Cataract surgery itself is done differently by different surgeons in the different surgery centers. Typically, it is an outpatient procedure, same day. You go home that day, and patients are usually seen either later on that afternoon or the following day. An IV is typically placed, and many times people get some mild uh, IV medication, typically to break any kind of anxiety. Some people just do an oral Valium. Local anesthetic is put in the eye, and surgery itself takes typically 10 to 15 minutes, not very long at all, although it could be longer if laser or the aura are applied for a more precise result. And patients typically do not have any pain, and normally stitches are not placed. Eye drops are used typically on the order of three to four weeks total, and the recovery period is usually quite quick. Uh, majority of the healing I tell my patients occurs sometime over the course of that first week. I usually do one eye and I do the following eye approximately two weeks later so I can see the patient one day after surgery and one week after surgery making sure that they are doing well and they feel comfortable to proceed in the other eye without any worry about that first eye not being appropriately healed. I always want my patients to feel as comfortable as possible because cataract surgery can be as stressful process, just like any surgery, and I always want that to be as good of an experience as possible. In closing, I would like to talk about the psychological impact cataracts can have on patients, the way that they can take away a person's vision, not allow them to drive, take away that sense of independence. We also know that patients with cataracts are more likely to fall, suffer debilitating fractures, for instance, in the forearm or in the hip which can even result in mortality. Uh, I myself have seen this uh, not so much with my relatives, but my dog, Rourke, who was a Yorkie, about a decade old, and uh, last year developed cataracts in both eyes. I know because I could see them with the naked eye. His pupil was essentially white, and he had it in one eye first, but was able to get around, drink his water, eat his food. But as the other eye became cloudy, I noticed that he was bumping into things more frequently. He was unable to go up and down the stairs with the same amount of ease, to the point where I was actually becoming fearful that he might fall down the stairs. And I noticed that his demeanor actually began to change. He really did appear to be sadder. Uh, sadder because he was not able to do his activities of daily living. And while I am a cataract surgeon, I was not allowed to do his cataract surgery. And I am also unfamiliar with dog lens anatomy, so I did have to take him to a vet. The vet did do cataract surgery, and I'm happy to report that my dog did very, very well. And I was amazed to see how much happier he became after his cataract surgery. It was almost as if he was a puppy again. It brought him back some youth. And that was also invigorating for me as a cataract surgeon to 
see that on a personal level, on a day-to-day -day basis with a member of my household. And that's the reason why it's really fun being an ophthalmologist and why I do what I do. I enjoy bringing that happiness to other people. I hope you enjoyed this first edition of Chatterax, etc. We will talk about a number of other topics in the future, so stay tuned.